All you reality TV lovers, we've got an extra special episode of The Girls Uninterrupted with our very own Aisha Scott from the latest season of Below Deck Mediterranean, all thanks to Hey You, the best of reality TV. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Did you see that you were a number one girl made the list of Forbes' most powerful women? Did I see it? I am just pleased. <laughs> the Google alert let you see it, I'm sure. Do not offend. I am just pleased to see Taylor Swift finally getting the recognition she deserves. Not finally, but, you know, more broadly getting the recognition she deserves. Indeed, from Forbes of all places. Like, she's number five on the list of 100 women, and the top four before her, they're all in politics. Like, number one is President of the European Union. Number three is Kamala Harris. So it's a pretty big win for Tay-Tay to be up there with them. Pretty good shoulders to be rubbing against. I've got mm. it up now. Another selection of highlights from this list of 100. Barbie was number 100. Oh, um, harsh for Barbie, I think, maybe. <laughs> this was Barbie's year. Um, so is Barbie real? Does someone need to break the news to Forbes? Beyonce, number 36. Oprah Winfrey edging her out at number 31. Beyonce wasn't silent. She was silenced. Hey. Thank you. <laughs> well, this is Newsable Kia I'm Jess. And I'm Imogen. And this is what's worth talking about. Battery-powered planes may sound like something from the future, but they're closer than you think. How choppy nice-to-haves won't lower those astronomic rates built. The sleuths are out. What is the mystery film apparently being shot in Wellington over the summer? And the South African golden sand swimming mole. That's had the comeback of all comebacks. We've got all that coming up in a moment here on Newsable. Newsable takes time and resources to produce. Please support our mahi and visit stuff.co.nz support. Air New Zealand has purchased its first battery-powered electric aircraft. You heard that right, battery-powered aircraft. It will join the fleet in 2026. And sad news for those of you who like to be at the forefront of innovation is that you will not be able to fly in it. It will operate as a cargo-only service for New Zealand Post. But it's still interesting. So here to talk some more about the airline's first foray into electric aviation is Air New Zealand's Chief Sustainability Officer, Kitty Hannafin. Kia ora, welcome to Newsable. Kia ora. Tell us a bit about this new plane. How far, for example, will it be able to fly? Mm. It's from America. It's been manufactured up in Vermont and they've done lots of test flying and they, they have been flying it for about, you know, 400 odd kilometres. We're going to take a step back from that and fly it in New Zealand around 150 kilometres, but it's got a little bit more uh, juice to go than that. But we're just kind of proving the concept here um, and we're going to fly it in small routes. It feels like kind of Air New Zealand's dipping its toe in a little bit to electric aviation, you know, like we're not going to put passengers on this one. We're just going to see how it goes for a bit. Not so much dipping our toe. I can see how it comes across like that. To bring a new plane into the fleet's quite a big job. And as you'd imagine, we have an incredibly rigorous approach to safety. So there's the whole kind of safety aspect because it's a brand new type of plane. And then because it's electric, we need to make sure that we've got the infrastructure in place. So the, the power charging infrastructure in place at the airports that we fly it from. So that's completely new. We've never done that before. So we've got to do that mahi. The regulators have got to approve how we fly it and, and the routes we fly and the plane itself. So this is actually 
an incredibly important first step in us actually bringing in more and more of these lower emission next generation aircraft. So dipping our toe in, but only so that we can, you know, go much harder out into the future and and do some really good stuff with planes that don't burn fossil fuel. A very well-researched dip of the toe. Uh, Presumably, Kitty, this is all part of your New Zealand's mission to get to net zero emissions by 2050. I mean, as an airline, how realistic is that goal? Is that a promise that Air New Zealand's going to be able to keep? Oh, it's such a hard goal. <laughs> You're mm. right. Um, and there are very few ways that aviation can deliver on that goal. We are so blessed in New Zealand that we can fly these different types of planes. Other countries won't be able to do that anywhere near as easy as we can. But that's still going to be a very small proportion of our 2050 goals. So very mindful of the small role that it plays. Um, we will need a lot of biofuel, you know, sustainable aviation fuel. But, you know, it's not on scale yet anywhere in the world. It's very expensive. Uh, we've got a long road to, you know, to, to sort of, pave there. We don't have any choice but to go as hard as we can to to decarbonise. And there will be a role, obviously, for carbon removals, but that's not our approach here at New Zealand. We're trying to take the emissions out of our operations. We're not relying on planting trees in 2049. That won't work anyway. So um, I think I'm also incredibly worried and mindful of the fact that by 2050, aviation will be a very big part of the global emissions profile, maybe up to 25%. So the onus on us to, to solve this and to go fast and to you know not be a laggard and not to wait for technology to come to us is um you know I feel that incredibly acutely. What's the bigger picture for electric passenger flights in New Zealand? When might we see that? What routes would they fly? That kind of thing. So um this plane that we've brought today can also take passengers. So it is a little passenger plane. We're not going to fly passengers. We're taking cargo, but it can be configured now for passengers. I think what we'll see. Pretty soon after 2026 is different iterations of the battery for this plane and or new models of this plane, which we're about to take, you know, maybe nine, maybe 12, maybe 20 passengers in the sort of, you know, late, late decade. But we're hoping that this proof of concept, which gives, you know, other manufacturers confidence and also beta confidence that they're going to have a commercial partner like us who are going to take them seriously, sort of the investment and profile that they need to sort of push forward and accelerate. But, you know, we're certainly hoping and we're aiming that from 2030, from that decade, with our little baby turboprops, one of our, our Q300 fleet, that, that that will be replaced by next generation aircraft. Exciting stuff. Kitty Hannafin, Air New Zealand's Chief Sustainability Officer, thank you so much for having a call at all. Oh, kia ora. Thank you so much. Nice to meet you both. If interest rates inflating your mortgage and your grocery bill growing week on week weren't enough, more pain looks like it's coming in the form of your rates bill. Mayors across the country are warning of double-digit rates increases, with the only alternative being significant cuts to essential services. Hamilton City Council is even proposing a 25% increase, around an extra 700 bucks a year for the average ratepayer. To talk about this some more, we're joined now by Lower Hutt Mayor Campbell Barry, who is also Vice President of Local Government New Zealand. Kia ora, Campbell. Thanks so much for joining us. Kia ora. Thanks for having me. Campbell, your council is proposing a 16.5% rates increase at the moment. I mean, that's not Hamilton City Council size, but it's not small either. As mayor, how does it kind of feel to have to go to your residents and ask them to contribute that much more? Yeah, we know there is a real cost of living crisis out there in our community for residential ratepayers and also commercial ratepayers and the businesses that support and pay those rates. The challenge for us is trying to find the balance between not kicking the can down the road when it comes to infrastructure and all of the services uh, that we provide in our community and also ensuring that there is a level of affordability. The system is broken 
the rating system is totally broken right across New Zealand. We have a, a situation where we are trying to get on top of decades of underinvestment in things like water and transport, and we simply don't have the funding and financing tools to be able to do that over a long period of time, spread the costs, allow for other funding mechanisms aside from rates. So it's, it's a real challenge. On top of that, we also have a whole heap of unavoidable fixed costs like insurance, interest rates, all those types of things which are impacting everyday households and businesses are also impacting local government. Would those increases be the same if we were still following through with the Labour government's Three Waters proposal? Is any of that new because we don't know what we have to do when it comes to our water infrastructure at the moment? We know that the previous government's proposal would have achieved balance sheet separation and that would have allowed us to not have water on the books. Ultimately, ratepayers still would have had to have paid for those water charges in some way, so we need to be upfront about that. But what it would have allowed is a mechanism to spread the costs over a much longer period of time and not to see these sharp rate increases and, and to achieve economies of scale. What the new government has said is that they still want to achieve that balance sheet separation but still have that local control and ownership. Are councils doing too much in general? I actually think the reason why we are seeing significant rate increases across the country, aside from the unavoidable costs, is because a number of councils are really trying to grapple with the core basics, water, transport, and they are the key things that are actually driving significant rate increases. So there is sort of this you know, view that, oh, hey, council, you just need to stick to your knitting and stick to your core function. You know, those nice-to-haves uh, you could cut. Uh, the reality is, you know, we could cut a whole heap of things that maybe some consider as, as nice to have that actually wouldn't have a large impact uh, in a lot of cases on our overall budget. It is really that those core functions that are driving the significant increases. What are your other funding options here, aside from rates? Yeah, so th- th- there is a, a suite of different options that you see around the world. I mean, some of the things that come up, for example, for major metropolitan cities uh, is the likes of congestion charging. That wouldn't necessarily work in a rural provincial area. You have some jurisdictions who have a share of GST. I think with the new government, you know, there is a clear indication there that they want to grow GDP. So we want to work alongside them and say, hey, how can we grow the pie? How can we make it larger? And take a share of that growth uh, because we need to be upfront and honest with ourselves that there isn't going to be a whole heap of spare cash lying around uh, to fund some of the functions of local government. So I think we do need to to think broadly. That is Campbell Barry, Lower Hutt Mayor and also Vice President of Local Government New Zealand. Thanks so much for your time. Excellent. Thanks, Jess. Wellington is reportedly about to play host to some big Hollywood names over summer. Who are they? What are they here for? This is the mystery of all mysteries. We're chatting about it next. And remember to never miss news as big as this. Chuck us a like and a follow on your favourite podcast platform. We love a mystery. And Wellington is in the midst of its own. As reported by The Post, over summer, the capital is playing host to a film production. But... No one knows what it is yet. At least no one that's not part of it. I'm sure the people part of it know what that is. Hopefully they do. Otherwise, surprise, surprise. It is tipped, though, to have celebrity spotting on par with Lord of the Rings. So thank Orlando Bloom. Goodness gracious me, Teenage Imogen would have been absolutely stoked to be in Wellington. Uh, Kate Blanchett, Elijah Wood, big, big names, basically, could be wandering Cuba Street. 
But it's of course not only about the celebrity spotting, Imogen. Film productions this scale also being great things for the economy and the industry. So here to have a yarn about all this is Tom Hunt, a senior reporter for The Post. Kia ora, Tom. Thanks for coming on. Yes, thank you. What do we know about this blockbuster? Star-studded cast, film production, or is this question better phrased as what? What don't we know? What do we know it's not? What can we eliminate? We could probably eliminate another Lord of the Rings uh, <laughs> fourth movie, but Thank you never know. Thank God. <laughs> um, but, no, look, we really don't know anything much about it at all. It's... Um, Apart from it's a big Hollywood production, you'd imagine Peter Jackson would be involved in some shape or form. But then, of course, we've got James Cameron living here as well, Taika Waititi. So who knows? Sky's the limit by the sounds of things. It's been a while since Wellington's had a buzz of this scale. What do projects like this mean for the city? I mean, at one point, it felt like Lord of the Rings cast were ruling the roost. I was living in Wellington during the Lord of the Rings um, making and The Hobbit. It really did change the city. And a lot of it's, those changes are still here. But, you know, all those stars, they did actually come out in Wellington. Liv Tyler famously got turned away from Motel Bar. Oh, no. Not because she was drunk, only because they had a very uh, strict door policy. But um, it did wonders for their uh, <laughs> credibility when they did that. All that money that came in, because it was all those people working on those films were getting paid relatively good money mm. and spending, spending it in bars in town mostly. One of the things you do know, Tom, is that they're going to be using the city's brand spanking new film studio, which is Lane Street Studios, out in Upper Hutt. So there's a bit of a coup for Upper Hutt. Do you think we're going to see maybe, you know, the Spanish football team scenario where the women fled Palmerston North? <laughs> they're going to be fleeing Upper Hutt to come back to the city? Yeah. Sorry, Upper Hutt, that might be a bit mean. Um, well, you know, some good things in Upper Hutt, I'm sure. Um, there's the um, there's the go-karting there. Oh, Got a yeah? good skate park, if I'm skateboarding. Um, an ice rink, beer Big beer area. But yeah, no, I think. Um, Brad Pitt just skateboarding in Upper Hutt. Is that what we're thinking? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't think, um, you know, High Street, Upper Hutt, or whatever it's called, has got so much on a rodeo drive, but um, it's a bit more authentic, maybe. And the fact that we've got this production, and I think there's a few more planned for summer as well, does that mean the New Zealand film industry is going great guns? Or are there. Uh, no, no, um, because the government does this film re- rebate thing where they. On the qualifying spend on a movie, if a company spends $100 million, they'll get 20% back of that. Sure. Now, it kind of works out for economic impact that each dollar they give back is worth, I think, $6 into the economy. So it does have real benefits. And New Zealand was doing great with that. Other countries, France and Australia and Ireland, are all much better now. When you're looking at just money, people are going elsewhere, apparently. So you know, there's a big battle on to increase that. Tom Hunt from Forda for the Post, thank you so much for your time. What a mystery. Can't wait to find out more. Cheers, all. This week on The Girls Uninterrupted. I'm not having a go. I'm just saying. No, you can. You can. But I would never put them on my feet. It is a crop phone. It's 100% a crop phone. And you are the biggest against crocs. I actually really like it. I just think that you need to now say crocs are cool. No, I don't. No, no. It's giving hypocrisy. <laughs> Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. The Girls Uninterrupted is proudly brought to you by our mates at Unichem and Life Pharmacy. Brilliant headline alert. I'll go and hit me with it. Sand swimming mole feared extinct, rediscovered after 86 years. 86 years? Yeah. 
Oh, yeah. that's, that's, we hear so much about everything going extinct. And look, this guy, he's rediscovered himself. This is awesome. He's rediscovered himself. He's reinvented himself. <laughs> the news also gets even more brilliant the more you read about it. The mole, which is described as elusive, surprise, surprise, 86 years in hiding, iridescent and golden in colour, has been rediscovered after not being recorded seen since before the Second World Holy War. Holy moly. Uh, and it was a border collie called Jessie that found said D. Winton's golden mole having a swim in the sand. Now that sounds weird, but I've seen a video of it and this little guy sort of like digs a hole and then it goes into the hole diagonally and tunnels along just beneath the surface of the sand. So you can see it moving along. It's very cute. Anything with uh, the name Jess or, or Jessie is always going to do well. <laughs> uh, I'm not surprised. Proud of you, Jessie, the border collie. Humble as well. Um, I've got some more fun facts for you about this cheeky mole, of course. It's about the size of a hamster. So I know we don't have those here, but it's smaller than a guinea pig. And it is golden in appearance because it secretes oil from its fur, which is then what makes it able to do its weird swimming under the sand. Uh, it's blind, standard for moles. And I've seen pictures of it, and it doesn't even look like it has eyes, but that could just be my read on it. And as I mentioned, last time it was seen was pre-World War II, which is the 86 years. So it's been around this entire time, and it's just been, I guess, hiding under the sand from everybody. Does it know about TikTok? Does it know about cell phones? Like, 86 years is a long time. Does it know that everyone's so happy to see it? <laughs> Everyone is celebrating. Yeah, it's gone worldwide and has no idea. <laughs> um, well, it, it, naturally, it lives underground mostly, so it's then therefore easy to miss and not see it hanging about, just, you know, crozing. But in that time, 86 years ago, when it was last seen, so around that time, it was widely acknowledged that mining activities that were going on were threatening its existence. So then when it hadn't been seen for a wee while, it was then just widely assumed that it had gone extinct until Jesse the Border Collie sniffed it out. I want to get a read on this. Let me look it up. Oh, Oh, that's what a mole looks like. Actually, they're quite cute. They're so cute. Make sure you Google golden mole, everybody listening. If you do one thing today, it's Google golden mole. I want to start my own golden mole sanctuary and be the mummy of the moles. I reckon that's going to be my new title, Mole, mole Mummy. mummy. <laughs> uh, as always, thank you for indulging me and my favourite type of story, aka brilliant news combined with animals that is newsable for today. I'm Imogen Wells. Imogen Mole Mummy Wells. And I'm uh, Jessica Jessie, the Border Collie McCarthy. Thanks so much for joining us. <laughs> Mole Mummy. <laughs> If you like this podcast, please support our work. Visit stuff.co.nz slash support. It appeared that a vehicle may have gone over the 80-metre cliff into the sea. There have been no bodies found despite considerable debris being washed ashore. Nine years ago, a man named John Beckenridge abducted his stepson, Mike Zhao Beckenridge. Soon afterwards, they vanished. Now... A new investigation is trying to find out what happened to them. This is The Lost Boy. Listen on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.